Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. All right, everybody, welcome. It is the 22nd day of the month of April. I am thrilled to welcome my first guest, Justin Welsh, joining us on the podcast. It's been a long time in the making. Justin, what's happening, man? Adam, how are you, man? Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Likewise, it's uh, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. And before we get in, into your story, just want to call out and give you kudos, man. Your, your content is killing it. It's you figured it out. You figured out what resonates. You keep it simple. You keep it concise, and it's value add. I mean, tell us a little bit about your about your about your background first, and then we'll talk about your LinkedIn journey and get into some fun sure. stuff here. Sure. First of all, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, you know, my background is I got into sales. Um, I think at age twenty one when I graduated school back in two thousand and three. And you know, a lot of folks may know my story, but the first six or seven years of my career were pretty. Um, you know, not very, not very high performance. And so I, uh, I got fired my first three jobs in sales. And at age 28, I was sort of, um, you know, a guy who lived in small towns. I didn't know where I was going. And I got an opportunity to work for a startup company in New York City when I was 28 years old. And I joined a company called ZocDoc, which oh, yeah. was a sub 10, sub 10 company at that time, sub 10 people. I think I was the 10th, 10th employee. Um, and for some reason, like, the people there, the city energy, the product, like my own maturity, all those things sort of happened at once. And I had a really successful career there. And I parlayed that into an executive career at a company called Patient Pop in LA, where I was the SVP of sales and then the chief revenue officer. Built that business from its first dollar in revenue to about 50 million in recurring. And then uh, in August of 2019, I stepped down from that role and I started building my own uh, advisory business um, really through LinkedIn. And since then, I've pivoted to doing a bunch of things. I'm an LP at a rolling fund. Um, you know, I'm an advisor to 500 startups in Latin America, and I also build digital products online. So do a bunch of bunch of little things. You're a renaissance man. Trying the hardest. So, I mean, let's talk about that moment. I mean, you had a successful career, you know, ZocDoc in the early stages. I mean, I, I've, I've heard of your, your crazy success there. Was there a moment where something happened where you're like, I'm done with this corporate lifestyle? I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah, totally. So, you know, there was a lot of things that led up to this moment, but um, in 2018, like I was getting really heavy, like I was eating poorly. I was drinking a lot. I was super stressed out. Um, And like, I looked in the mirror one day, I was like 230 pounds, give you some context. I'm like 190, right? So like 40 pounds heavier than I am right now. Just And uh, yeah, I just wasn't feeling very good. And um I don't remember the exact day. It was in December, I, I believe, of, of 2018. But I had a panic attack where, like, I literally thought I was dying. And my wife had to call, um, you know, 911. The EMS guys came out and like put wires on me and all that stuff. And I thought oh, I was man. dying. 
And so um, it still took another, I think, nine months before I ended up walking away. But that was the the crescendo um, moment. And so I just gave I gave a heads up to my co my, the two co founders, and and that was that. So that was burnout, and like literally, figuratively. And what do you think caused it? Were you overworked? Was it a combination of not being, you know, not being physically fit, right? Like you couldn't mm -hmm. physically handle it. The stress mm -hmm. of work. The, I'm sure you were putting crazy hours. You weren't taking care of yourself. You were drinking. Mm -hmm. It was just a vicious cycle. Totally. Yeah, it's interesting. Like a lot of people think of burnout as um, overwork. I actually don't think it's it's much related to to overwork. I could work forever. I still work all day long. I like to work. Like just how I'm how I'm built. Um, to me, it was loss of control. Um, hmm. I was in. I was in. You know, I built the say when I started. I was the VP of sales of one person. And fast forward five years, I'm the the chief revenue officer of 155 some odd people. And it was my first experience doing that. And so as things got bigger and bigger and bigger, every day was something new. I had never seen this day before. And when that happens, you start to lose control. You start to not delegate effectively. You start to not know how to solve certain problems. And that, that hurts. It's interesting you say that. It's, it's an interesting way to think about burnout, that it's not always redlining, overworking, undersleeping. Mm -hmm. It's not always that, but the control aspect. Because I think when mentally when you have... When, when you have things under control, you're able to be stable. Things are able mm -hmm. to be stable in your life. But when things start to get out of control, it's a downward spiral. And that all kind of kind of rolls together in there. So so fast forward, when like was it during this time, like let's talk about like during the Zoc Doc days and early on, were you mm -hmm. dipping your toes in anything passive? Were you doing anything on the side, no side hustles? <laughs> Partying. Uh, yeah. you know, well, I, I wasn't I wasn't New York at twenty eight. I mean, that's prime yeah. time. Those are my favorite years of my life. Yeah, well, I, I, I should say I that now. I love my kids and everything, but I wasn't you know doing too I mean. many too many interesting things other than working hard. Zocdoc was a real hard place to work. I love it. Like I still love it to this day. It was a great experience, but it was a really hard place to work. So no, to be honest, like this was 2009 to 2014. So like I, I know there was the internet, of course, but like the internet wasn't like it is what would you know. It wasn't right gold, now. gold mine that it is, right. you know? So, so no, I mean, outside <clears> of work, I was just enjoying time with my friends and my family, but no, I wasn't interested in that at all. I feel like it's this crazy cycle, right? Like everyone has to be a publisher. Everyone has to have a podcast. Everyone has to have a course. Is it, is it just a fad, man? Is it just one of those things that you, like everyone's kind of saying you have to do it? No, I think it's the beginning of something larger. I think like... I'm not a futurist, so I'm not one of those guys who like can see where this thing is going. So I'm not like creative or talented in that aspect at all. Um, but I do believe that people will continue to invest in themselves and build their brands. And I believe that people will be solo businesses. I think people's brands will be their own business. I think you'll see a lot more one person businesses out there than you do today. And I think a lot of it is going to be knowledge based. So I think today a lot of people have what I call like knowledge blindness where they don't realize how valuable the knowledge is inside their head. Oh, it's they have. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And as soon as people start to realize like, just how valuable their knowledge is, I think it's going to be a, a serious moment for those folks. I, I've been having that moment. I mean, I'll, I'll break it down. I mean, I know a lot of shit. <laughs> I know a lot about nothing, as I like to say, or I know a little bit about <laughs> yeah. everything. Um, yeah. and, and and you and I have been talking on, on, on Messenger and email too. Like I've had, and look, I'll talk about it openly here. You know, I built something. I built the podcast, which is the live show and the proper audio podcast. And I talk about it all the time. The podcast fuels my business development. It's a B2B driver. Mm -hmm. And I built this model. I've proven it out. I have booked clients off of the show. So it's been proven. The case study is there. I built a full infrastructure, a full ecosystem, a full CRM, and it's all mapped out. 
So Justin, I spent, it was probably a couple months ago on a quiet day. I literally mapped it all out in a Google doc, mm-hmm. mapped out all the steps. I didn't get into details, but I did the whole thing, the whole plan. And I looked at it and I'm like, for me to do this the right way and blow it out into a proper course it will take me an incredible amount of time, an incredible amount of effort because I want it to be a quality product. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know if the ROI is there for the amount of time and money I'm going to invest into it. Cause I wouldn't sell my course for anything less than honestly, like seven fifty, eight hundred, maybe a thousand dollars. Cause I know that's what it's worth for what I'm putting in there. So how many people would truly be interested? Would it be worth it? So I don't, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do or, yeah. Do I blow it out all the way or do I kind of simplify it and make it like an entry thing to see if people are actually interested and then upsell them maybe to the consulting, like the one on one, which might be a little bit more effective and valuable? Yeah, my, my take is I don't build anything unless people have already bought it. So, um, you know, my last course that I, I, I built called Idea Audience Proof Product, I sold, I think, $40,000 and awesome. 300, 400 some licenses. Um, before I even put the first, you know, letter on a page or you, pre- you first, pre-sold it. Totally. I, I had an idea in mind, but I'm not going to go build it if no one's going to buy it. So, so I pre-sold it and everyone bought it. So I had to build it. So let's, let's pause on that for a second. I'm just mm-hmm. technically, how does that work? Like, how do you, how do you convince people to buy something that's not even made yet? I and mean, what's, is there like a refund on it? Like, like, how do you guarantee them and say, Hey, if I, if something goes wrong and I never build this thing, I'll give you your money back. Yeah. I usually, um, there's sort of like an aggregation of things that I think I do effectively. The first thing that I do is online. I don't try and be anyone other than who I am. And so I think if those folks that follow me and, and engage with my content on a regular basis, they're getting a true authentic look at the person that I actually am, not someone that, not a character that I'm playing. And so I think, <laughs> I think it's, it's really good to like have this following for a long period of time. They trust you. They get to know you. They know you put out quality products. The next thing that I do is everything that I put my name on, I try and go deep on like, I try and make it the best that I think it can possibly be in the whole market. So like if you buy idea audience proof product, you're getting three and a half hours worth of everything that I possibly know about those four different quadrants. So that that's like the second thing is first my, my profile and who I am. The second one is like the work and effort I put into it. And the third one's how I price it. So I'm not like a seven fifty thousand fifteen hundred dollar guy. I actually do the reverse. I like to make my stuff really accessible, really affordable, and what I depend on is that folks are going to be like, this is insane value for this price. Right. And I'm going to go tell five of my friends about it. And that's what it. happens. That's it's how I make my game. sales. Yeah, it's totally. Volume, volume. It, it's, it's interesting though, but like I, we see them everywhere. And well, I went back to one point that you made that I absolutely agree with. Like it starts with like people throw around personal branding. Dude, tell me, tell me like, is this something so unique to LinkedIn? Like I've never seen it elsewhere. I've been in the marketing world for a long time, right? Like, is this a bullshit thing? Like, cause I feel like there's a lot of people trying to teach people to be something. The, the real good ones show people how to really amplify who they really are. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of shit out there where people see, oh, this person's doing well. I gotta be more like them, even though it's not like me. And it, it's a downward spiral. So A, I appreciate, and I think that's why you're successful because what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could read your post. I could see through bullshit. Like I see it. I know what you're talking about. I know that you know what you're talking about and that works. So you're establishing that credibility. But what about everybody else out there? Like what's just your take on on the current date of a personal branding and courses everywhere? And then I want to I want to double back to this. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is I'm never a hater. So like and, and I know that's like kind of a silly word to use, but like I don't know. I'm I root for anyone making an effort. Um, it's hard and it's hard to get started. So like even if you're making an effort and you're doing it the wrong no. way, at least you're 
at least you're doing something. Like there's so many people who do nothing. I'm like trying nothing new and take no risks. So even if you take a risk and you're not very good at it, like kudos to you for doing that. You took a shot. uh, Yeah, you you took a shot, number one. Like, but number two, it's interesting. I had a guy the other day who I would never mention, and I actually don't care that much about it. Like, take something I had written, take my name off it, and put it on Twitter. Just blatant plagiarism. Yeah, which is fine. Like it happens and I'm, I'm used to it by now, but at the same time, he got no interaction, zero. And I got like, I don't know, 50,000 people who read it. And like what I wanted to t- that person to take away and I didn't reach out to them and I, and I won't and I will never hear someone them. like that. Right. No, of course not. But like the thing is you can copy the content, but you cannot copy the journey. You cannot take the last 30 months of writing every morning and like you steal can. that. Can't do you it. Can. So you, you might as well it. just work hard for it. Uh, it's, it, it's it's fascinating, but I think that's a really interesting approach there too. So if if you were me, and I and I, I have I, I have this case in point. It's proven out. I've mm-hmm. done it. I have the infrastructure. I have the templates. I have the workflow. I have literally could hand you the keys and show you how to do this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Where do you think I should start? Should, should I like should I, not that I don't want to put a poll up, but like should I should I do some market research? Should I see like who would be interested, how many people would be interested to see if it's worth the effort, or is it a pre-sale thing? I mean, for me, like, I don't know, I ignore most of what I read online about like how to do things appropriately because I think most stuff is is not very well done. So the, the thing that I would do is I would try and say, all right, what is like, what does my audience care about? I guess what my audience cares about based on the amount of DMs I get about the same subject, the amount of comments I get about the same thing. So I kind of know I have market research just by right. seeing that. If you don't have that, I might just reach out to your audience and be like, hey, here are four interesting things that people ask me about all the time. Which is most interesting to you? And like, yeah. that is the simple data that I need to get started on something. But, but if I were going to build something, rather than put something into this massive course, the first time you do it, pick one of those things, take something you can teach someone in 30 minutes, put it into a short course and take someone from point A to point B in 30 minutes. And, and, and I think that's a great tip for a couple of reasons. One, you're going to get people into your ecosystem. And I'm also going to test myself to see if I could deliver at the level I want to with the yeah. right information. And do you like it? And do I like it? That's the other thing too. Because mm-hmm. if I blow this whole thing out, it would literally take me. I went through a few different like course things, and like it would take me like fifty like to do it right and filming individual video modules and everything. So I got to really think about like which part of this entire flow would would attract the most people, not be super niche, and then like if people get into the because like I could I could strip this whole thing down and take out the B two B component of it and it still applies to everything else. It's how to mm-hmm. produce a proper podcast the ecosystem and everything it, it, it's fascinating so let's talk about you know the the whole i mean i, I love this concept that we all have ip and right? we mm-hmm. all have it out there we all have something but how does somebody know if, if other people are going to give a shit and if you're good enough to to share it yeah i don't like for me it's just looking backwards so for for example um I don't, I don't really know what good enough means. Like it's, there's not an objective definition to good enough. So I'll give you an example yeah. of what I mean. Like I built a software business from its first dollar in revenue to 50 million. That's pretty cool, right? There's not a lot of folks that have done that, but like Mark Robert's built HubSpot to a hundred million from zero. Like if I looked at Mark Robert's, am I not good enough compared to him? Yeah. If I looked at, you know, someone else who had built a business to 500 million, am I, am I not good enough? And so That's a fair point. The, the way that I think about it is like, who hasn't done it? I, I would assume that if someone's only built a business to a million or never built a business before, that in the context of their life, I may be good enough. And so what I try and think about is who who is me like five years ago? And that's that's who I try and build my stuff for is you know me five, four, three, two years ago, something like that. I, I, fo- I figure I've been on that journey. I might as well help other people you know reach the same point. That's, that's a fantastic perspective. And I think that 
it kind of got my wheel spinning too because I think a lot of the courses I see out there are literally like LinkedIn 101. I'm like, who the hell doesn't know how to update a profile photo at this point, change their about section? But those courses sell like hotcakes and they're, and they're at a low price point. So with all the new people coming on to LinkedIn every day, there's a market for it. And, and maybe I'm kind of you know a little bit jaded because I feel like expert level, whatever, been on this thing since 2016, 2006. But there are a lot of people that are not and it creates a marketplace for it. But do you think it's like, I don't want to say incestual, but like it's kind of like an, a weird closed ecosystem happening now on LinkedIn. Like, what, what are your thoughts just on the whole course selling on the platform? It feels closed because we're all in the same ecosystem, but I think it's relatively open, meaning like you and I run in a similar sort of ecosystem. So it feels like we see the same guys and gals writing content every day. Right. When in reality, like my wife writes about a different topic and yeah. I the like folks, your content about investing and everything. It's great. Thank you. The, the folks that play in her ecosystem, I've never seen some of them before. I'm like, oh, these are like, I'm like, oh, these are new people to the platform, but there's people I haven't interacted with before. So there's like, there's like 500 million people on the platform. We just think we're the only ones doing it. <laughs> it's, it's almost like it, it's weird. I mean, it literally is like the way the algorithm works, even if like you're not in a pod and we're not talking about engagement pods or any of that stuff, but the way the algorithm works, you see the same people's content that you engage in all the time. We only, we're only seeing a small percentage of our total followers and our, to our followers only seeing a small percentage of the content. If you hung out with my audience on Twitter, for example, you would think that everyone's in crypto, everyone lives in Miami, <laughs> like all the same things, right? right. You, would, you would be in that bubble. And I think that's actually really, um, it's really bad. And like, it, it, my, my thing is to try and add new people from new, you know, political backgrounds, religion back, religious backgrounds, geographic backgrounds. Like I like to be exposed to everything. So I'm not in this like, Closed-minded circle. That's interesting. How do we how do we do that on LinkedIn? How do we open up our how do we open up our feed? And what is LinkedIn? Yeah, a lot of times I just yeah. ask people. Like I, you know, it's it's really interesting. Um, one of the most one of the easiest ways to get something that you want that a lot of people are like, how do I do something? I'm like, just ask for it. So like, oftentimes I'll be like, hey, I have an audience of mainly sales professionals from my previous work experience. <laughs> And I want to meet more people in this particular industry. Who are those people? And Love most it. people are just very like happy to comment them in the comments. And I just click in my I add them. Yeah, it's not a tag for tagging. You're asking a very specific, yeah. you know, this isn't some kind of growth hack we're talking about. You're like, you're interested. And it's fascinating too. And I found this very organically. Um, when I post recruiting specific content, mm -hmm. I get a lot more second connections coming into the comments. And I connect with them. It's, it's amazing how that works. And now I'm building this incredible network of recruiters and being able mm -hmm. to really, truly like establish myself as a thought leader. Not just that, but network within that and open up opportunities and take those conversations offline. It, it's, it's the intention, right? It's the intention yeah. behind, behind everything. Um, you, know, you, you talk a lot about you know, the, the relationship between active and passive income. I'd love if you could mm -hmm. unpack... Uh, that concept, how one fuels the other. Yeah. So I'll give you like an example. So um, I am an advisor. That's what I do for a living. I advise early stage SMB SaaS companies. And so I carry anywhere from six to 10 clients on a regular basis. And the hourly rate at which I charge, I could likely never, um, you know, uh, copy that by selling LinkedIn courses. Right. Yeah. It's just not going to happen or, or by, or by putting myself up for one-on-one -on -one coaching. Like my, my rates are generally affordable to companies that have venture capital funding. Understand and so, so I make my active income that way, but then I take that active income and I invest it into doing things like building courses. 
So for example, I spent 90 hours making idea audience proof product. And so far it's sold, I think 60 K. So it's whatever that is, eight, 800 bucks an hour. That's really good hourly rate. Yeah. But I'll never, ha I'll never have to submit another hours worth of work into that. Every sale I make now increases the hourly rate over the continuum of time. And okay. so that's, that's relatively passive. And then the next thing I do is once I make the money from the passive income, I give it to my wife and I say, here, you go invest that because that's what she does for a living, right? She invests our money and she turns that into dividend stocks, you know, um, better returns in, in um, I don't even know how to speak her language because I don't manage our finances. My wife well manages all our finances. So that's our, that's our machine, you know, and that's, that's what's, what's helped us. That's, that's fascinating. And when, when with these courses, are you getting the, are you taking the real time feedback and tweaking? Like, do you do like different versions of a course? Do you do updates, or is it like set it, forget it, and I'll use that knowledge for the next one? Set it and forget it because yeah. if, if, done, the, if, the, if the course was a thousand dollars, I would make updates. But for a fifty dollar course or a ninety nine dollar course or one forty nine, like the fact that I put ninety hours into it and it has everything I can possibly think of on that topic, like I feel like the value is so huge, and um, you know. I get people buying the LinkedIn playbook. I, I built it 18 months ago, 15 months ago. And, you know, it still sells to, I just sold a few more today. Like it still sells because all the information in it is, is I think, and this may sound really arrogant and it's not my intention, but like it sort of feels timeless. Like it's going to be good information on copywriting and things that like yeah. will, will be the same next year, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's evergreen for, for, for some of the concepts, but not so much mm -hmm. like new features and technology coming out. Oh, so what's, 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 on, what's on the horizon? What, what's some of the content that you're thinking about? Like what's coming up next as far as what you're building courses around? Yeah, um, long-term, I'm gonna probably do another LinkedIn playbook, but it's gonna be significantly different and a little more special. Um, and we'll get into the details of that when it, when it comes out, cause I don't want to announce it cause I'm actually working <laughs> with a part, I'm working with a partner and a partnership on this one. Um, so that's in the future. But what is more immediate and near term is a private community that I'm launching on yep. May 11th called Audience and Income. And it's it's a private community of creators who want to grow their audience and earn some income online. And they want to do it without spending the 30 months that it took me to figure out how to do all of it. It's a team building exercise. And I think that's awesome. Like if we can do that as a team together and like unlock everyone's ability to scale audience and income online, that's going to be really cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking that out. It, 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 it piqued my interest. What's up, Rich? Rich Cardone in the house there, everybody. Um, what advice would you give for somebody who's looking to start a course? Let's get a little tactical for the few minutes that sure. we have here. Totally. What, what, are, what, what are some questions they should first ask themselves? And then once those questions are like a go, or yes, where, what direction should they go to start planning and building it out? First question, what is a topic that I could talk about unprepared for 15 to 30 minutes? without any problems baseball. like for instance for instance at baseball for me craft beer like i love craft beer i talked to you about it for 30 minutes totally unprepared i talked to an audience about those it. ipas LinkedIn. don't put you to sleep man i don't link Ugh. linkedin i feel like it's like a meal every time i have an ipa it's like i and i, and I enjoy a good ipa every once in a while man but like too many i'm, I'm full sorry about to go meet a really good creator actually here in nashville on an ipa in a, in a couple hours but um uh, I, I could talk about linkedin uninterrupted without any preparation for 30 minutes. So find something you can talk about for 30 minutes, you know, uninterrupted. The next thing that you should do is figure out what's the outcome that you would want to talk to somebody about. So if someone wanted to know about that topic, like what would the outcome be? You take them from point A to point B, what's A and what's B? Just figure out where you want to take your audience, right? It can be very simple. The next thing I'd, I would recommend doing is time boxing. So like give yourself 14 or 21 days to build it. 
Parkinson's law. However long you give yourself to build something, it will take that long. And if, if you, you give build yourself, it, they will come. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But if you, sometimes, but if you give yourself 90 days to build something, you're going to spend 90 days. You give yourself seven days, you're going to take seven days. Parkinson's law. It's basically proven. So give yourself 14 days and, and then go out there and make it affordable and accessible. And brevity is your friend. Teach someone how to do something in 45 minutes or less. Nobody wants to spend three and a half hours. My no. course is too long. I shouldn't have made it three and a half hours. I, it's a, it was an oversight by me. It's got to be I, digestible. It's got it's it's got to be you got to be able to absorb the information. It's got to be actionable. You got to be able to take take action immediately uh, and and do it. But let's talk about the other side of the coin here. One of the, one of the things I talked about with somebody who does a lot of courses is you have to put in the effort for marketing and whether you're being through targeted Facebook ads, like you're putting the effort in investing. You saying no. I don't do any of that. I've never run an ad in my life. I don't know how to run a Facebook ad, a Google ad. Here's here's the way that I think about things. I think people overcomplicate things. And like, you can read about email funnels. You ever read about like email funnels? And I can't like, even start to look all, at click funnels and all that. All, all that. Well, whenever I read that stuff, I'm like, who wrote this? Oh, a company that sells funnel software. Of course they wrote about that. Like, Makes why wouldn't sense. they? Right. So like everything is being overcomplicated for a reason, because at the end of overcomplication is a paycheck. Someone gets paid by complicating things and by making you feel confused. So I do things really easy. I write each morning on LinkedIn at the same time, 715 central time, every single morning, Monday through Friday. And then about once every eight to 10 days, I just say, Hey everyone, here's my course. And Here's a lot of nice things that people have said about it. And here's a lot of case studies that people have used to show their growth. So if you want to buy it, you can buy it today. And that's it. That's the only promotion. So I let's talk about, I, I love to, because I see people like literally lamenting. They spend hours and, and, and days thinking about like the perfect post and everything. Tell us about how the journey works for you from idea to the keyboard. to posting. Yeah, I use a, I use a matrix. So I'm a systematized guy, built sales teams for a living. So everything is automated, data-driven, all kinds of systems and processes. So mine, mine is simple. I have a matrix. On the left-hand side is about 30 strong opinions that I have, that I truly believe, things I truly believe in. And they're the same things. You see me talk about the same things every day because I believe in the same things. Across the top are different structures, observations, X versus Y, now versus the future, step-by-step, -step, listicles, whatever you want to use that day, right? I take a strong opinion, I take a structure, and I just match them up and it's easier for me to think when I'm when I'm not staring at a blank white piece of paper going what should yeah. I write today it's so interesting because I take it for granted like literally aside from my podcast content which is quote-unquote evergreen and produced and like I have it scheduled to promote a show mm -hmm. most of the shit I do is off the cuff it's an idea it's a concept I have a thought in my head it's something I see it's an observation and I just literally type it and post it but that's a level of ability and confidence that I have after a long time doing that. So I take it for granted. And I also use the notes section in my phone when I have an idea, if I'm out and Same. about, I, I, I have a thought starter, I have an idea, I have a concept, and then I blow it out later when I, when I get home. But so many people struggle with it. And I think that's why like a lot of these courses sell because people need ideas, they need thought starters. And it's not about plagiarizing. We're not telling people to copy, like here's my post, copy it word for it. But these are thought starters and structure. And mm -hmm. I think that matrix is fascinating. I assume that's a piece of your LinkedIn playbook. Yeah, it is. It's a piece of, I think, the newer course, ID Audience Proof Product, more so than the LinkedIn Playbook, because I didn't used to do that. I used to struggle. Um, but I think what's really interesting is like people want to get really polished. And polished website, polished content, polished everything. I have almost no polish. So you go to my personal website, it's a template. You go to audienceincome.co, it's a card website I built in 10 minutes. Like I connected it to MailerLite. I don't even know how to use email systems. Action like, I just over perfection. Action. I just, 
put things out into the universe. The more things you put out into the universe, the more that sticks. Some things are going to fail. Yeah. Like, I hope people want to join this community. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to experiment it. So, Justin, let, let's wrap it up here. I got Matthew down in the green room. I see him. He's doing his yoga stretching. Is he doing some stretching down there? I could see him. He doesn't think I could see him. I could see him down there. He's doing his pre-live his pre-live show. I tell everybody, if you're going to come on the podcast, you got to warm up first. I'm kidding, man. So, Justin, leave us with something good. I see Mark Noodleberg in the house there. His dad says it all the time. Tell us something good. So leave us a silver lining that you've experienced professionally and personally during the last 14 crazy months that we've had here. Yeah. I think a lot of people read my content and they say really nice things to me all the time. And they say like, oh, you're, you're a good writer. I really like your content. But by the way, I appreciate all that stuff. But like, even as someone who seems to have the content game on LinkedIn relatively, uh, for lack of a better description, figured out, like I, invest, I invest so much time, money, effort into getting better at skills every week. Like I love buying courses. I buy people's courses who have a thousand followers just, just to learn something new because if they have one trick or tip, like that's yeah, awesome to learn. And so my, my biggest, like people are looking for hacks in life. The biggest hack in life is investing in yourself. If you don't invest in yourself, why would anyone else? And so I always just recommend that. Spot on, man. Justin, where can folks find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they learn more? Yeah, um, I have uh, my personal website, justinwelsh.me, and they can check out my new private community if they're interested in going on a similar journey with other creators. It's audienceandincome.co. That's audienceandincome.co. Awesome, man. If you want to just put that in the comments of the live stream here, people could check that out. Justin, I appreciate you, and uh, I'm looking forward to checking out that community. And thank you. I, le I learned so much from you. And Thanks, I love your and, and your and I like the consistency in the morning. Like I know it's going to be there. It always shows up in my feed. And I, dude, I mean, you're blowing the engagement out of the water. I mean, that just goes to show you. And you're doing things organically, right? There's no pods or hacks or bots on this shit. My wife. Right? So, so like <laughs> these are these are real people engaging, and that's how it works. Yeah, exactly. There's no pods, no bots, no nothing. I don't do any of that stuff. No, no need, man. So, Justin, I appreciate you. I'm going to bring in Matthew, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Appreciate it, Adam. See you. Cool. Take care. What's up, Adam? Matthew Matola. <laughs> this is the tough part about a standing desk is like, ah, crap. You know, I got to stand up for 30 minutes, get some stretches in before. So you got me. So let's talk about the standing desk for a minute before we, before I introduce. So I, I have this new studio and office space that I've been in for uh, almost two months now. And when I built it, I, I'm a huge fan of the standing desk. I got a nice big standing desk right here. I do it for at least all my shows I'm standing. Every live show, every podcast I'm standing. Keeps me in the zone. I also have this freaking awesome. Check this out. This is a balance board. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dude, yeah. it's heavy too. And I keep this on the floor. So when people see me and, and they see me rocking like this, yeah. I'm, I'm literally just rocking on it. And and when I first got it, when I first got it, I would come home and I would be sore, man. Like literally my legs. And I'm not in shape. I don't do any exercise. I don't give a shit. Yeah. But like after a couple of weeks of it, like it started to like feel I feel strong on it and I love it. And it's like a fidget board. It's like a widget fidget board of it. Anyway, we digress. Matthew <laughs> Matola, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm all pumped up. I hearing Justin was awesome. So thanks for putting me in the middle so I can like, you know, jump on top of his shoulders. Uh, <laughs> and we got we got Jackie Hermes uh, bad and clean up here. You you're in Miami? I am, which was funny that Justin called it out. I'm like, oh crap, I'm in Miami. But uh it I, I will say I've lived in five cities in five years. So it's been Boston, SF, Seattle. I was in Singapore the last year. So nice. I kind of say I go wherever freelancers need me. I love it. Miami. Miami is the new is the new San Fran slash Austin slash hotbed. I mean, it's it's warm, it's it's open, 
There's tech everywhere. There's money flowing in. I mean, what are you loving about Miami right now? All the okay. above. Yeah. So let me start by saying, like, I didn't come here for tech, actually. I came here. I was in Singapore, and I was working until 8 a.m., like, two months in a row because, you know, our freelancers are fully global, but media, predominantly U.S. and EU. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I was like, I need to be in, in, in EST. And so I came to Florida purely because my aunt lives, you know, a couple couple minutes north. Right. And I wanted to make sure she was okay. But so I'd never actually been to Miami. I thought it was a bunch of really? people. Yeah. Where, never where, been. Where, where, where are you from originally? Uh, originally from outside of Boston, a small town called Newburyport. And you never, your family never, never took been. you back? Man, I, I guess I'm spoiled. I mean, we have an apartment <laughs> we have an apartment in Miami and my family's down there. Yeah. So you yeah, come so down you here for the- go. Oh, and I know. The one that I talked to, they were like, oh, you're going to spend time in Miami? Like, that's just going to be a bunch of coke and partying. And I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> not what I want to do. No. But so I got here and I literally just like visited for a day or two days. I booked an Airbnb just to see what it was like. And my expectations was actually Nashville or Charlotte, North Carolina. But I fell in love with it, specifically the immigrant sort of. I mean, people call it like the immigrant hustle here. Yeah. But I just, and, you know, net of tech. I didn't meet any tech people, but I just loved yeah. the entrepreneurs I met, the coffee shops, the restaurants. You it's name a good it. vibe. Yeah, and we're not talking – people think about Miami and they think about South Beach, which is literally the tourist trap. But, like, we're talking Miami, Miami, Miami proper. It is awesome. The Wynwood District, I mean, like, they're, they're, they've revitalized the entire community. Listen, there's still some blocks you don't want to turn down at night. Don't get me wrong there. But for the most it's, – it's young. It's influential. There's money coming into it. It's definitely a cool place. So let's hit the rewind button. Give us, give us 90 seconds background on you. Yeah, so I lead a company called Venturel. We're a software operating system for freelancers. Also just publish the human cloud. And literally everything in my life has been the freelance economy, both growing a freelance business, leading freelance teams, and then enabling companies to spend up to $100 million on freelancers. So like, that's my thing, right? Like, what's my skill? I don't have any. I just know the freelance economy. And then the last two years, I was helping lead Microsoft's program. And then before that, was early at a company called Gigster, where we were doing million-dollar software projects, 100% for freelancers. So. Yeah. Anything, you know, remote, freelance, contingent, that whole space, that's me. I love it, man. I mean, that's my business. I mean, if I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at the the NHP, yeah, which is the, the talent group here. It is a consultant-based recruiters. And all my recruiters are 1099. Yep. I no, outsource freelancing, you know, sourcing is free, and I and I built it and understanding the concept. So let's let's rewind that like that concept there. Years and years industry in america was full-time jobs and then it was part-time jobs but not like freelance right like so give us a little history lesson here let's let's do like the last what would you say 10 15 years of how the idea of freelancing has become more mainstream in the eyes of the public being acceptable right remember like i'm not gonna tell my mom i'm a freelancer no one's gonna like take me seriously and also the business element of it and why it makes sense for individuals and companies. That was like a 10-part question for you, but you wrote the book, which is called Human Cloud. You are the expert, so Matthew, take it away. <laughs> so I got to reduce, what, a thousand years into 10 seconds? Thanks, Adam. Uh, I mean, no. it's like the start of the Big Bang Theory, right? You're watching yeah, the intro to Big Bang Theory? Yeah, it's exactly that. I will say, fun fact, I also got dumped by for being a freelancer. So, you know, it is something that is pretty new and definitely culturally, growing up outside of Boston, right? It's pretty working class. But so- Yeah, but what do you mean? What kind of bullshit is that? Oh, you're gonna you're go not really work hourly. Right? You got no yeah. benefits. Go work at a Dunkin' Donuts. Clients. Yeah. But so, um, actually, I'll ask you a question, Adam. So, so where do you think the term freelance originates from? Do you know this answer? Uh, I think it was ancient Egypt when they were using slaves to build the pyramids. No, no. 
And that's not it. I'm wrong. No, no, you're the first person to say that. And no, no, and no. we'll be the last. Yep, it's pretty bad still. But uh, it was actually medieval mercenaries. So the knights were called freelances, and so that's where the term gets its origin. But so the knights you know, that were basically had no king or queen to call home. They were like for hire. They were like hitmen. They were hitmen. Exactly. Exactly. Freelancer, lancing, fencing. And they had free, no freelancer. Home, Got it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They just fought for whoever gave them more money. But so. We move on from there, right? So it really actually comes all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, where we talk about we're all a bunch of masonaries, we're all a bunch of craftspeople, we built clothes out of our homes, realized that the factory was a more efficient system, so then we start to have more of a full-time type labor structure where we have full-time employees. Things start to change around the 1950s when you start to see the, the temp industry and the consulting industry. So you start to see, I forget if it was McKinsey or Bain or which one was first, but you start to see these pop up which is the first time that we realize, oh, wait, there is a value for someone who's not a full-time employee. Now, where this hits hyperdrive is around the early 2000s. So Upwork actually started, technically started in 1999. It was Elance and Odesk. They merged, I think it was 2016 or 2014. But so we start to see this temp model, which literally all the freelance economy is, is you work off a contract versus being a full-time employee or you're an independent contractor mm -hmm. versus a full-time employee. So Early, you know, 2012, we start to see some remote work technology start to come to fruition and freelancing goes from this niche thing that you did, but instead of retirement or that you did instead of getting a job because you couldn't get a full-time job into something that the top talent becomes freelancers because you get paid more, you have the flexibility. Right. And one of the most important things is it gives access to more people. So you actually hear from a lot of, you know, military spouses, mothers and fathers, People that just can't work Gives in a nine to five full time, but are still flexibility is such a keyword. Exactly. So you start to see that, and so that was the past, you know, ten years, but definitely five years significantly accelerate. What we're starting to see now, though, is when you look at the younger generations and they look at their parents, they realize that, oh no, there's my parents didn't have control, and my father, my mother got laid off by the company. And I don't want to be that person. And so the numbers of Gen Z and millennials that are already freelancing, crazy high, over 50%. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, see, so I see it real time. Really I see it real time. Now, from a business side, though, because this is where it gets really interesting. So the past 10 years, the freelance economy was pretty much SMB, solopreneurs. Basically, I want to use my credit card. Right? Mm -hmm. Creative. Um, studios or like Hollywood studios have actually been freelance forever. Uh, and you look at journalism, which is also a highly freelanced industry. But what we start to see in the past five years is companies like Microsoft, right? And Google and these large companies realize, wait, there's a workforce that we should tap into that is better than agencies because agencies are the main competitor of freelancers. Not Yeah, the, the agency model is literally, you know, billing them out hourly. Exactly. You're paying for a service and you're also paying for all the overhead. Exactly. You're paying exactly. for the overhead. You're paying for the building, the desk, the healthcare. Exactly. The and whole that's all the caboodle. freelance economy is for companies, is that you can see the whites of the eyes of the people who would do the work if you went to an agency, but you wouldn't actually see that person in an agency, right? Because they would kick it to a bunch of different people that were probably cheaper and you never know them. Whereas in freelance, go right to them. All right. So let's let's flip it there for a second and talk about the cons, right? Like I, I'm a freelancer. I have to pay for my own health insurance. I have to deal with all that stuff myself. There's a huge problem in this country, in the United States. We're talking about US-based freelancers. It's really shitty. It's really shitty. My healthcare sucks. My wife, my wife and my two kids are under her policy, which in itself is a great policy, but super expensive. It's cheaper for me to be on my own for subpar healthcare. And it's tough. Like I had to go to the doctor last week. The doctor I've been going to for years, all of a sudden I call up, I haven't been there in a year. He doesn't take my insurance anymore. 
because it's a, I'm not going to call the name of the company out, but it's not universally accepted. That's a challenge. You don't have paid holidays. And I tell everyone, when I don't work, I don't get paid. We're talking about the cons here. The flip side of that is I could charge what I want. I could decide if I don't want to work, I could take time off. I mean, that, those are just two big benefits. I'm in control. Technically, I can't get fired. I could fire myself. Um, but there are a lot of cons there. Let's talk about the cons. Let's talk, it's not all gravy. You know, like you said, listen, we all have those friends that have been traveling the last two years all over the world. I'm just working out of a coffee shop in Bali, right? Like, no, there's a lot more than that, right? You got to figure out where to work, right? You, there's a lot to it. How do I say this in a nice way? Say, uh, say it the way you want here. I, I've, no, I mean, I, I've never met the guy, but like Tim Ferriss wrecked our industry, to be <laughs> the honest. five-hour work week. It, it, oh, it, it's, it's, well, first off, it's crap, right? If you want to work four hours a week, then you have probably some problem that you should go to the therapist for. That's deeper than, than, than that book, right? So talk about the original clickbait. Oh my God. So the title yes, of that so, book was. I know. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll keep it at that, right? In the, in the form of Justin saying, uh, having no haters and staying positive, I, yeah. I'll, I'll keep it at that. But yeah. I, you know, that was a horrendous thing for our economy and he's wreaked havoc on people who, you know, so that's, that's my take there. Um, with that said, the, the cons, which you, you, you nailed, right? There's, there's lack of benefits. The, one of the biggest ones is there's a total feast or famine income roller coaster. And so one month you make 10 X what you ever did. The next month it's, it's a yeah. desert and there's nothing to amount. But all of this actually stems from the fact that, and this is natural with any technology change, that there's winners and there's losers. And right now, the, the freelance economy, there's a lot of losers, but there's really, really strong winners. And so it is a dumbbell economy, meaning 95% of freelancers are not in a good place, but 5% of freelancers are doing better than they ever have or ever will in full-time employment. So what I mean by that is if you go to a like freelance marketplace, the actual uh, engagement rate, meaning if you have 100 people on the platform, maybe two of those people are actually making money. And so if you did uncover the hood on our industry, we have a massive unemployment problem. Yeah. With that said, and that stems everything, right? And the reason there is simply because there's, a million, there's over 50 million freelancers in the US. Globally, there's over 100 million. But the spend from the companies is only this small. So it's literally just a classic. Is it, an under, is it an underpayment problem? Because yeah. I know in the creative, listen, I worked in the creative world for a long time and I would see freelance creatives come in and their day rates were astronomical and they would get paid. You know, we're talking day rates. I've seen day rates in the one to $2,000 a day for a senior creative director. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It's a hundred percent not a underpayment. Uh, actually the medium wage for freelancing, I think is $10,000 larger than it is for full-time employment. Uh, and if you look at the actual freelancers who are doing this full time uh, and who have committed to it, because a lot of the data, one of the problems with it is if, if you've been freelancing for six months and you weren't a good full time employee, you're probably not going to be a good freelancer. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and that's one of the problems right now with legislation is there's a thing called the PRO Act coming down the pipeline. And they're looking at, you know, ride sharing drivers and they're saying this is freelancers. They're not in the same category as a you know content marketer or a developer yeah. or a designer. Um, so the problem is actually at the releasing the spend level and it's kind of a technical thing, but it's literally the, how do we get this work item out of the door? So if you're a company and you want to go hire a freelancer, there's certain restrictions, right? Like there's safety controls, there's compliance, control, liability, liability, all things that are, I would consider them a moment in time. And it's kind of like, we can go back to, you know, the pre days of Uber, right? If Uber said, Hey, taxi industry, hey, government, we're going to do this thing. 
government would say, no, you can't do that. But Uber said, F it. We know that customers or consumers are going to love us. Mm -hmm. Now, the freelance economy is a little more of a, a gradual process because this technology changes fundamentally transforming work. And so it's not something where overnight we go from 30 million to 60 million, then to 300. It's not going to jump like that. But with that said, the growth is still pretty insane. And especially with COVID, that has significantly yeah. accelerated in ways I never imagined. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about all the people that got laid off and the gig economy comes calling and they're looking to pivot. They're looking for things that they could do from home. They're finding new passions. They're seeing that this works. But I still go back to the fact that you still have to pay for freaking healthcare, and that kills it. Yeah. So it, it's interesting you mentioned the Benefits. healthcare. Because I, you know, I lived in Singapore for a year, like I said, I paid 700 a year for healthcare. I came back to the US and I gulped and said, oh my God, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I, I pay more than $700 a month for myself for shithole healthcare. I know. Um, there are solutions. So uh, there are solutions out there. Um, there's one called IndiePop, which you should probably check out like right now. How's um, it spelled? Uh, I-N-D-I-P-O-P. Um, there are very, and this is where with any technology change, right? It's an ecosystem where you need to incentivize mm -hmm. the entrepreneurs to fix these problems. And there are many good entrepreneurs that are fixing these problems. If we look yep. at sort of the financial roller coaster, there's one called Formations out of Seattle, actually, that's fixing that. If we look at um, healthcare, Indie Spot Up. Spot Up. I just spoke to the founders last week of Spot Up, which is injury insurance, which is pretty cool. It's not health insurance. So you're a bike messenger, say like you're uh, action sports, whatever break an arm, break. it just covers those type of injuries for 25 bucks a month. Yeah, no, it's, and, and listen, I think that the, the number one thing I want your reader, listeners to get away from this is that the freelance economy actually is not abstract or different in any way, shape or form. It's just work that's been digital and remote. Like that's yeah. all it is, is it's a shift because of the technology that's coming down the pipeline. Freelance makes more sense than full-time employment in most cases, or definitely an agency. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's talk about the book. Like, where, first of all, I love to ask authors, like, where did the, you had the idea, because this is your area of expertise, but where did the idea come from that where you're like, you know what, I'm going to write a book? I'll be honest, like, it wasn't planned. None of this has been planned. Uh, I started freelancing out of survival. I needed to make money in college. I couldn't work a full-time job, and freelancing was the only way that I could do it. What did you do from in college? That, I actually majored in finance and accounting. But the only way I could pay for it was through sports. And because of sports, I had a yearly scholarship. And if I didn't go full time into sports, then I'd lose my scholarship. So I was in this weird position where I, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't do a full time internship. Right. But what were you doing for what were you doing for freelancing? Uh, everything business related. So I would literally yeah. go business to business and I would say, I wow. know you want to figure out who your competitors are and what they're not doing. But so I you also were putting what you're learning into practice immediately. That yeah, exactly. is entrepreneurial spirit. So yeah. I needed money. <laughs> so the, I mean, there's literally what it comes down to, right? So, so talking about the book here, how does that process start? Is it an outline and then you kind of fill in the blanks? Talk to us because I think it's really interesting to talk about the writing process. Yeah. So let me, let me preface by saying there's no one unique process and you could copy exactly what I've done and you might be better or you might be worse, right? And I think that's one thing I do want to call out uh, what you had talked about prior in the personal branding. My contrarian view is actually... I think the influencer economy is one of the worst things for society and there's definitely a place for it, but not everyone's going to have to be an influencer and I definitely not everyone's going to need a personal brand. I know, I know, I know, I know. So, I, I, agree, I agree with you on that. I think that the people perpetuating this idea of a personal brand because they want to sell you into a course about personal brands 
which is bullshit. Just be yourself. Put your content out there. Say what you feel. Feel what you mean. And just fucking get on with it. I know. And so, and let me preface. People can't do that. <laughs> I, well, so, and, and the one thing I will say is the, the number one currency that the data that we see, which data is not data that's, you know, out there promoting the, the influencer economy is that deep relationships is by far the number one driver of financial security. That's it. So if you're a say that again for everybody, it's relationship based. Everything is long game relationship based who, you know, what they know about you and maintaining, building, fostering, developing long-term relationships. So ready for the book, ready how, how, it, how it comes into in line with it though. So, okay. So the book, uh, and let me just make sure I call out to like what, what this looks like in impact. So if you looked at the book, you'd think that me and my co-author, Matt Cotney were the ones that really, you know, were the value drivers. In reality, it was actually a, pro, a project manager named Sam Mason, who is by far the most valuable person I've ever worked with in my life. She's not, you know, her LinkedIn. Shout is Shout out. Right. Seriously, though. And the reason I want people to know that is because you won't find her, you know, posting on LinkedIn every single day. But when you go talk to her, she is so busy because so many people like myself and Matt want to work with her. So that's the first thing in relation to the book, though, it was an organic process that has gone over eight years. And to be honest, there's no way that we could have planned for this. It was simply putting <coughs> ourselves in the right position to succeed and just keep going on the process. So I had been technically writing this book my whole life. Like I would yeah. write articles to help leadership teams, all the pieces, freelancers, mm -hmm. right? Little pieces. And then each little piece there, this is, I think is what really part the relationships. Each little piece wouldn't get me to be famous, right? Like I've never gotten to a point where people are like, you have a hundred thousand subscribers. So you you weren't aiming to go viral no. or be an influencer. That was never no. your plan. I'm I hate, I hate that by the way. I hate when people like trying to teach yeah. you how to go become an influencer. You think, but just by throwing money and bots and followers that make influences, being able to compel a thought and idea where someone goes, ah, I never knew that. I just learned something from you. You're a true subject matter expert. Not like, oh shit, look at that lady. She's got, you know, half naked with a million followers. She's an influencer. What is she influencing? Thirsty men. That's it. Exactly. So, so. Sorry, yeah, I so, rant. So, my show. No, so, so keep it in the book. So what happened would be every article I'd get. Stay on like course, Adam. Or... We're talking about the book. <laughs> But I'd get like one or two people that I'd form a deep relationship with, that they would reach out to me and say, I love what you were doing. And we would, you know, be lifelong friends because of that. And so what that did, though, was that did give me this sort of uh, avenue to access that not that no one else could have had simply because I had spent years building deep relationships that would then enable me to be the person to get a HarperCollins contract. Mm -hmm. Right. So when the book came around, it actually prior, it was a report. And it was called The Future of Work, The Impact of Artificial Intelligence and the Freelance Economy. And I hired a freelancer named Matt Coatney to technically vet the AI section. And because I was poor as hell living in a living room in San Francisco, I wrote the first draft and I did, took a bunch of courses, you know, a bunch of free online courses to not be a total idiot about it. Right. So we had this 220 page report and we also had like an early following kind of, of people who were like, I absolutely love what you're doing. And this was mostly leadership teams where we could be like, we have the top 30 leadership teams behind us, but we don't have this massive audience. So then fortunately, and things are serendipitous, we met a book agent, John Willig. If anyone's looking to write a book, John Willig is your man. He's probably busy, like I said, and probably not taking on new clients, but he is like the hero of us. So John was the one that said, you need to go out and get a traditional publisher. And what was important to us was not making money off this book, but instead making sure the stories of the people who were in it 
we're on the best stage possible because we both like, like we're not necessarily money driven but so that was sort of where we got and then it took a year to be honest of pitching publishers we talked with over 70 i think and we got rejected by every single type of publisher what was the common rejection we didn't have a big enough fan, uh, following that was the number one because they, they wanted they want to be able to sell as many books as, as quickly as That's possible i mean it's a business yeah yeah so it, it, but you learn so like we kept hearing they were like uh, can you sell 10 to 15 books on in your first year? So then what we would what we figured out though was that it what we weren't going to win head to head against like a Dan Pink, right? Or like something yeah. of that matter. And a little dirty secret is a lot of these books are paid for, by the way. So like a lot of authors, they pay right. the ghostwriters, right? Or they right. have a big company behind them that's gonna buy a million books to make sure they're on the lists. So, yeah, they juice it. They juice it. They buy the books and they give it away. Or, or, or a lot of these speakers too, they go to a conference and instead of their speaking fees, they say buy X amount of books and give them out. And that juices the sales numbers too. Exactly. And you, you can figure out who this book is. You, like, well, you know, when, you go to, when, you go, when you go to a conference and you see piles of books there. I know. And we, so, and we've, there's been principles that we fundamentally as a company refuse. We don't pay for play. So like we have had uh, conferences that have been like, okay, if you want to speak, this is the fee. And we're like, no, no, no. Like we'll take a fee, meaning you, I, pay, I you pay me, not pay. Yeah, no, I'm not going to pay for play because the people that are going to the conference don't deserve to have, listen to me if I've paid my own stage. And then if you're paying to play, and you're pitching. You're going to be in pitch mode most of it anyway. Because <sighs> you want to get a, you want to get an ROI on your investment. Yeah, I know, I know. It's bullshit. But so, so that was the process of the book, though. Was it was you know over eight years of actually writing it, and then the big game changer for us though was that when the publishers turned around and said, "Why do we trust you?" we could turn around and say, listen, and kind of like I just talk, Justin talked about this, like we have 20 leadership teams that have already given us the recommendations for the books. We have 2000 crazily engaged people, which we think can lead to 50 Amazon reviews. If the, an Amazon review is worth more than a follower oh, yeah. on a real Amazon review. Exactly. <clears throat> so that's, that's what we went by. And, you know, I, I think to and the second thing we did, which was probably the scrappiest thing I've ever done. We told them that the book was done. And so I think what they said was, all right, let's just, let's give them what's left of the budget. They're, they're pretty much, there's no risk. They've de-risked all this for Right. Us. So you told them the book was done before it's completed. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had seven months to like actually write it and we did scrap it and write a whole new book. And uh, thank God for really? freelancers. We had over 15 freelancers uh, in the process. Uh, we wrote the first line of everything, but we did have freelancers as editors. We had a comedian come in, actually add some jokes because I don't think I'm that funny on my own. Right. Um, he added some, added some excitement to it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, Interesting. Yeah. And and I think that when people understand, and I talk about it all the time, like the reason I've had good and growing success is because I understand the concept of scaling. And the way my approach to scaling is anything that somebody could do better, quicker, cheaper than me, and they're an expert in it, and I don't have to take the time to learn how to do it, I'm going to outsource it. And that has been a key to my success, building the podcast. I didn't build this frame here, right? I didn't do any of that. After the show is done, when it turns into a podcast, that goes to my editor. I don't do that. When I turn this into video clips now, that's outsourced because I'm not going to spend the time to do it. And that's what the, the, the freelance account, embrace it, people. Use it to your advantage. And you're supporting people too. And I, and I love it. And I have, I have US-based freelancers that get paid a fair, good wage. And when some people feel bad about like, oh man, I, I found somebody over in Sri Lanka. I'm only paying them $10 an hour. That's huge for them. It's a win-win. In fact, one of my guys, my video guy, he's over in Sri Lanka. Last last year, he sent me a picture in front of his new car and says, thanks for helping me get this. I was like, fuck yeah. You do good work for me. 
I'm paying you fair. I, I, I tip him every other order just to juice it up a little bit. He's loyal. He's part of the team. We're connected on LinkedIn. He loves seeing his work on LinkedIn. It's a global world. It feels good for everybody. I don't feel like I'm taking advantage of anybody. He's getting paid. If, if he told me, well, he's not listening, but if he told me he wanted a couple bucks more, I'd probably pay him a couple bucks more. Because <laughs> yeah. it still works for me. Right? Look now, Adam. Yeah. I know. He's not gonna, he'll watch the replay. I it, see. It's a new form don't of leadership it. that I think is what I'm most excited about is that if you wanted to be a leader, right? And there'd be a bunch of HBR articles about what leadership is. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted to be a leader, it really meant you had to jump into a large company and you had to find a way to be a manager and then go win headcount so you could manage a team of 50 to 500 people. We're in the freelance economy. It's not that in any way, shape or form. It's more how do you persuade, influence and motivate a group of people that will never ever work for you to align on a shared vision and, and, and quite frankly get shit done, which is what I personally love about hiring freelancers it just feels better, right? The incentives are aligned. And if I suck, they can leave me, which I find so refreshing. And, and th- let's talk about that for a moment. There's, a, there's less of a commitment and less of the stigma of taking a full-time job and that fear of what if I don't like it. It's really a great try before you buy on both sides of it. I mean, that's something that we really, we really, don't, talk, we really don't talk about much. So let's flip it around. Let's talk about what is next on tap for you. What's in the, what's in the pipeline? What are the future plans? What's, what's the big follow-up here, Matt? So it's all it's still freelancing. Uh, I, I, I could really shock your audience by saying, okay, I'm going to start a construction company or yeah. something. Maybe that would throw people off. No, the, the next focus, and not even the next, the current focus and where we need to go as an industry is we need to go from a gig-based economy, meaning individual transactions, to team-based slash network-based. So instead of just a, hey, I'm just a writer, having freelancers enabling them to have communities and networks so that they can go and they can win a full web, you know, a web project or an ad campaign like or something that. such like that. So that's what we're doing at Venturel. We're building the software for that uh, with the human cloud. It's all about putting the standard for this and making sure people know this isn't the four hour work week in any way, shape or form. No. Um, this also a lot more work that goes into it. Exactly. So yeah, that's what, so anyone who's interested in, uh, you know, enabling freelance at scale, that's, that's my game. Who's this book for? Who should be picking up? Who should be reading it? Okay, ideally the one profile I would call the change maker. It is the 31 year old named Taylor who has worked his ass off, right? Yeah. He's, he's gone to a four year college, gotten the 3.8, whatever, but feels like he wants to make more of an impact. And whether that's being a freelancer or whether that's hiring freelancers, the human cloud is gonna show you a world that you can do more with less and that you don't need necessarily to go with that one traditional path and you can still create change and make a massive impact. I love, I love it, man. I, I love it. So like, what's like, wh- why, like, why are people so against freelancing? Like, why is it still kind of a dirty word? I, I think it's, if you haven't freelanced, you think it's something that you have to protect. And, and let me, let me give the intent of, you know, there's kind of both sides. I think the people who don't freelance and have never done it before, there's a little bit of a, oh no, you're going to get exploited. I mm. also think though, the other side is there is a little bit of jealousy. Because when you see someone that is making, you know, double what they made yep. working at a company and has more flexibility, we're humans. We're naturally jealous and insecure. And so I think those are the two sides is it's a, how do we protect these people? Which if you talk to them, you know, over, I think it's 67% of freelancers say no amount of money would get them to choose a full-time job. Uh, these numbers are increasing. Yeah. I mean, the, the freelancers want to freelance. And in most cases, they need to freelance. They have unique situations that they can't go take a full-time job. Yeah. So 
I think those are the two drivers and I really don't want to assume bad intent, uh, but instead I'll just say it's, you know, we're, we're humans, we're animals. <laughs> we, we are. And, and it's so interesting. I mean, when I made the shift to freelance, a lot of things changed for me motivationally. When you don't have the crutch and I'm not insulting or throwing shade on people that have full-time paychecks, like my wife and zillions of other people out there. But when you have to eat what you kill, it kind of changes your motivation. It's tough too. And I think a hard part for a lot of freelancers is the business is a, that switch, that initial switch to to like, Oh shit. Now I got to go do biz dev and then doing the biz dev. Like that's a hard part of it. And then, and and then you go on the the Upwork or the Fiverr and you have to give a cut to the house on it. Like, yeah, it's tough. Talk about that for a moment while Jackie's getting set up down there. Is he stretching or what? Is he copying my stretch? I can't see her. Her Her camera's not on yet. She'll be on in a moment here. So I want to make sure I do call out one point is that because I think what you're touching on is like this, we are absolutely not saying that everyone should be freelancers. There's still a place for full-time employment. The difference is that full-time employment used to be the default and the employee used to not have the power where now it's switched, where the employer is the one on the hook in terms of making sure that they're treating their top talent right And that's what it's about. And so me personally, like I'd be a huge hypocrite if I said that we should all be freelancers because yes, I'm always a freelancer. I've been a freelancer. I've grown a freelance business. I also took a job at Microsoft. I took a job at Gigster. I might take a job in the future. I don't know. The difference is that it's all about my control. Is it something that I, you know, ethically want to support? Is it something that makes sense in my unique situation in terms of my life? And so that's it. I think it's more of a future where the employee or the actual talent themselves, they have the power. And that's whether you're a freelancer or whether you're a full-time employee. And in terms of the Upwork and Fiverr, um, I would just will say that the way the data skews is that the best freelancers have their own business, not necessarily need a marketplace or you know, partner for their business development. I love it, man, Matthew. So let's wrap it up. I got Jackie coming in in one second here. Matthew, where can folks find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they learn more? Yeah, uh, you can go to my LinkedIn. You can Google. Uh, you'll you'll find me. Yeah, awesome, Matthew. Let me bring Jackie in. Jackie, are you are you done snacking down there? <laughs> good to go. I don't want to catch you when you're snacking. I mean, that's not that's not the man. You know, when you're like running between meetings and you're like, did I eat? That's what just happened. And I heard that you two were still talking. So I went to get my bag of mixed nuts and was eating them. Well, I was, I was trying to buy, well, I was trying to buy time because I saw you walk away and the camera went off and I didn't know if you were having technical difficulties. You were taking a snack break. Just eating. You know. you know what? I'm going to play, two can play at this one. You two connect for a minute. I'm going to grab a drink from my fridge. You two connect. Watch this. Introduce yourself to each other. What's up, Jackie? Where, where are is, you? Most this is one way to do it. <laughs> the host turn in on it. Where, where are you, Jackie? Milwaukee. You? Uh, Miami. I'm a little mm. warmer than you. Yeah. But I don't have nuts, so I think you're living a better life. Uh, oh, I don't think nuts yet. makes up the difference between Milwaukee and Miami. Not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, better for I imagine. Yeah. You guys, are, you guys are taking over the show? You got this? I could. Just yeah, see, Adam. We don't need you anymore. Yeah. Peace out, awesome. Adam. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank I got you my, so much got for my having me. Have a good week, y'all. Take care. All right, there he goes. Jackie, what's happening? Finally, we made it happen. I know. What's going on? Thanks for having me. Uh, quite the lineup today. I heard a little bit of your, oh, I love those. I heard a little bit of your chat with Matthew and you had Justin on earlier. Love him. 
Thank you. Justin's great. And it goes back mm -hmm. to what we always talk about is adding value. And I think that's why you and I initially connected. That's why I love your content. You keep it real. There's minimal fluff. I think we all put a little fluff here and there when it's the right time to fluff a little bit here and there. Um, yeah. Quick, quick product placement. I would love them as a sponsor. These ahas that I just got into with the caffeine in them, it's just enough caffeine where it's not like a full cup of coffee that's going to like tweak you out at four o'clock. And you're not drinking like a cup of coffee that's sometimes gross later in the day. And I love them. I'm a big fan. So I didn't even know. They don't all have caffeine, right? Because I have Correct. a- Some of them don't. Okay. I need to, what kind is that? This is the, I just got this flavor. This is the mango and black tea. Wow. I need to try mm. that because I've had the like LaCroix-like ones, but I didn't know they're, and I am a caffeine fiend, so- <laughs> Caffeine, let's talk about caffeine for a little bit. I it, it it is a drug, and I don't think we talk about it. I wasn't even planning on talking about it, but like, I need caffeine. If I do not have my coffee in the morning, I don't I don't think I could function. And I think it's you have kids, I have kids, and like, we, we need that pep in our step. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Are you, you know, like addicted? Mm, I drink a lot less than I used to, which. Gonna give myself a little pat on the back for that because I swear I used to drink like a pot of coffee a day and now I drink less, but it seems necessary. Whenever people tell me they don't drink caffeine, I always think, how can you survive? But I guess I could give it a shot. I just don't really want to. <laughs> I think I think if you detox out of it and you're able to like like wean yourself off of it and focus on like good sleep and nutrition and everything and get into a different rhythm, because it's it's one of the most addictive drugs out there. Mm -hmm. That's great. So we digress here. Jackie, what's happening? Great to connect. Yes, you too. I'm really excited to be here. I feel like we're, we're kind of like this like old school. And it's funny because like there's the people on LinkedIn that were like, like the originals, like the OGs from like 2004, 2005. Then there was like this other breed that kind of came up, uh, you know, probably about, I mean, we've been on it for a while, but as far as like really putting out content and, and, and putting ourselves out there in the last, you know, you know four or five, six years and, and you definitely one of them connected with Q and the whole Milwaukee kind of tribe out there. Um, yeah. And it's been fun to watch. It's been fun to watch everyone's journey on the sidelines. And now with everyone with the live streams and the podcast, we could really kind of bring it all together. So let's take a moment. And I'd love if you could introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do best, Jackie. Ooh, um, who I am and what oh, I do look, best. I wore this for you too. I'm wearing my Miller, my Miller. I support Miller. Miller Highlight. Like it. I'm not a beer drinker, which is almost a crime in Wisconsin, but <laughs> I just don't like it. I think it's disgusting. Yeah. Uh, who I am and what I do best. So I'm Jackie Hermes, CEO of a company called Excelity. We work with B2B SaaS companies. Um, I just launched a new course that um, is helping marketing or put together marketing plans for startups and Gosh, I do a number of other things, but that's a quick summary. What do I do best? I don't know. I like shooting the shit on podcasts, so thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. It, it, it's fun. Keep, it keeps you sharp there. But let's talk about your journey. Um, let me look. Let's go to LinkedIn here for a moment here. Like you weren't always a founder, right? Mm -mm. You didn't always work with startups there, and you worked in companies. I mean, a little little company called GEIC over here. <laughs> Just right, a so, little tiny company. <laughs> a little tiny company. And and I talk so much about this that, listen, if you look at it from a percentage standpoint, like you're only seeing these really small, like these crazy offers, these crazy IPOs and everything to like these early stage, like young founders. The real successful ones are the ones like you who have that foundation of experience and can build it up and everything. Do you think that you could do 
what you're doing now at 22, 23? I mean, I started a, a cookie company, which was my first foray into entrepreneurship when I was 23. You're talking about sweet um, monkeys. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I guess I, I did start it, but um, purchased the the brand name, which had two E's and monkeys. And I always kind of hated that. But. I just saw that and I'm like, am I pronouncing it wrong? Okay. No, it's right. Um, but honestly, I, and I had no freaking clue what I was doing at that age. And frankly, I just, I don't think that I would be able to do what I'm doing now in the manner that I'm doing it because I have, I know so much more now. Like it's, and I know so many more people. A lot of life is about who you know and networking and who you can meet that can introduce you to other people. And I mean, I remember hearing that when I was like 22 and I was like, whatever, that's dumb. It's not about who you know. Well, in some ways it is. <laughs> it, def it definitely is. I, I think one of the, the best lessons that I learned was early in my career, I was working at um, in New York at Sirius XM Satellite Radio on the first mm -hmm. day. And it was like a really cool company because it was corporate, but at the same time it was entertainment. So you had that, that mix of like, the radio shows, the celebrities, kind of everyone coming out there. But on the first day, my boss, Debbie, she took me around literally by the hand. Like I was a little kid, like, like, like not like a handhold, but like that weird wrist grip. You know what I'm talking about? With someone, and I was like, okay, where are we going? And she walked me around three floors and introduced me to everybody. That's and awesome. it was at that moment where I really understood why she was doing that. Like if I had to go run something down to legal, if I had to go to finance, they knew like there was like just a relationship game. And I think so many people now, they're trying for the quick win. They're trying to like the get rich quick, you know, the hacks and everything. But it comes down to building strong, long-term fundamental relationships. Mm -hmm. why, do you, why do you think like, what's going on with society right now? What's changing everything? Oh, God. Sometimes I hear my kids like, I'm going to be a YouTube star. All I'm going to do is this and this. And I'm like, whoa, there's way more that goes into it. Like, Props, if you if you want to start your own thing, they all want to be little entrepreneurs, and I think it's adorable. Little Charlie D'Amelio's, right? I totally love it. But I'm like, man, I mean, I show them a lot of hard work goes into this, and it's years of consistency and um, you know late nights, and you have to you have to be willing to do all of this. There is no quick win. I mean, there might be somewhere, but I personally haven't seen it. It's for a very small population. How, how old are your kids? 10, 10, and 14. So they're at an interesting age. They know what the hell's up. Yeah, they really do. Honestly, really sometimes do. sometimes when they talk, I'm like, where did you hear that from? Or the like the phrases and the things they come up with. I'm like, what am I teaching these kids? <laughs> so weird. Like I have a, a nine-year-old and she's very sassy and spunky and she's into the YouTube and more, more about the TikTok. But she mm. creates on TikTok, so I'm okay. Like, because at first I was like, "Oh man, another social media platform." But then she like started to create more and get into the actual editing to it, and she really has taken a liking to it. And I had her actually edit one of my LinkedIn videos, and it kind of came full circle. I'm like, "This is pretty cool." But you said something that really sparked something: the work ethic. Mm -hmm. The example we set for our kids—that's everything. Mm -hmm. That's that's everything. Did you grow up like that? Did your parents have a strong work ethic? Both of my parents are very, very hard workers. Actually, I was talking to my dad probably a few years ago now when he first moved part-time down to Florida. And I remember he told me like, the, he has like an over overdrive work ethic. I don't know how to say it, but you know, like he almost works himself to the point of exhaustion. It was always involved in so much stuff. And, and I 
definitely got that from him. I get, I'm better about it now, but for a while there, I was really, you know, like not in a healthy place. And he, he said, that's the one thing that he wished I didn't get from him. And so I, and it's not the, the work ethic, but it's the tendency to overcommit and overstretch yourself. Like almost as if you have something to prove, maybe not even to others, but to yourself. Is it also maybe a function of being like a people pleaser or like not wanting to let people down and, and a commitment type of thing? I am super not a people pleaser. So I don't- Good for you. Well. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, like I try to help people where I can. I try to say yes to things like things that a lot of other people don't like random networking meetings or people, you know, are like starting a business and want to ask me questions. I try to say yes to that stuff more than no. Um, but no, I don't think it's a people pleasing thing. How? I have this problem too. I have a lot of people lately in the last year or so that ping me on LinkedIn or email and ask to like pick your brain or they ask for advice. And I, I want to give back. I really do because so many people have been so generous in my life, but now it's just a time thing mm -hmm. where I just don't have the bandwidth for that. And I find it hard to say no. It's just not in my, it's, it's tough for me to do that. How, how do you say no to people? Like it's tough. It is so hard and it feels like shit, right? Like it just doesn't feel good when people are starting a business or doing whatever and they really think that you can help them and then you feel that you have to say no. Um, the book Essentialism has a whole chapter on this and I've written down a number of the strategies. Actually, I have them in a note in my phone whenever I'm not feeling confident in my abilities to say no. So saying things like, like what was that? Like go to kind of prompts to help you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's saying things like, you know, I, I can't attend this event or do the speaking engagement. I have a prior commitment, but this person might be able to do it. Um, you know, like offering an introduction if you can, or just being super honest, you know, like I have a lot going on right now, so I'm going to have to pass. But if you could reach out to me again in six to eight weeks, I would love to chat with you. And the people that do reach back out, I am more than happy to make some time in my schedule to take them off. I really like that tactic too, because you're putting it back on them to see how their follow-up is, how committed they are, how much do you really value my time? And I think mm -hmm. that's a dynamic that's hard for people to understand that our time is valuable. We're business owners, we're parents, we're mentoring people that work for us. Mm -hmm. We have out, all these outside commitments. Like I look at my calendar sometimes in the morning and I'm like, where's the time to do stuff? <laughs> when am I actually gonna get shit done? Like when am I actually gonna do work? Like after this, when we're done, like literally, I when I do these live shows, I have to turn my phone on nighttime mode to avoid it. I shut my email off so I'm not looking like down on my computer here. The only thing I have open on this screen right now is your LinkedIn profile mm -hmm. to avoid other distractions. Otherwise, this shit would just be coming in. And I know when this is over, the email box is going to be like that. Mm -hmm. But I want to, I want, I want to be present here. So let's talk about Accelity, right? Did I say it right? Yeah, Accelity. Accelity, close enough. Close uh, enough. <laughs> Tell us a little bit of how the company was born, where it started, and where it's at now. Tell us a little bit about the journey. Yeah, a little fun story about the name and why I was like, yeah, close enough. Excelity, um, excelity, excelity. Like, like excelling. I remember when I was picking the name for the company and I didn't ask anyone what they thought. I liked it and I was like, we're gonna roll with it. And then I got a bunch of feedback after I already was like, decision made, like no one's- On the website. Right, right. And, and I got a bunch of feedback that no one would know how to pronounce it. And I was like, well, 
too late. I already made the decision. So I've just kind of accepted that some people are going to not pronounce it the way I prefer and it's all good. You know, like it's, it's not the end of the world. So how the company started, I started consulting eight years ago, which seems seriously like in, in my heart of hearts, I don't even feel old enough to have started consulting eight years ago. Um, but, and it was just, I mean, I didn't want to work in corporate anymore and i did love my time in corporate but the company that i was working at i had been there for almost five years and they were private equity owned and they announced that they were basically splitting the company in half and selling off half of it and i was like oh do i want to stick around for this uh, getting my department cut in half my very small under resourced marketing department and i was just like i don't and was trying to figure out what i wanted to do and got some topic the, that you were just talking about before got some freelancing opportunities and I was like Meh. like let's let's see what this is about it wasn't really like a intentional I'm gonna go and start a company and have an office and all these employees and stuff like that um, but that's what it turned into and I'm really I'm really glad that I took the leap I started hiring employees about 18 months in um, and some of my earliest team members are now a part of my leadership team which that's is awesome. really cool so they've been here through all iterations of the company. There's something to be said about loyalty. And what what is the what is the business? What's the business model? Yeah, so we're a marketing agency. Um, we work mostly on like a monthly ongoing retainer basis with our clients because they're looking for help from us in every aspect of their marketing. For some of our clients, we are their entire marketing department. And it's always You're a really- White label marketing team, yep. Yeah, exactly. And it's always a really cool step where we're able to help them grow to the point where they're then hired. Like, okay, I think we're ready for a marketing hire. We're like, the training wheels could come off. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. fra fractional, fractional marketing. I mean, that's exactly what I do. My company mm -hmm. is fractional talent access. We work with companies that have a small or they do not have a recruiting team. And we come in and we are that function. And I love it when they say to us, we want to hire a recruiter. I go, yes, excellent. Let us hire that recruiter for you and bring in the right person. And then it's kind of like, all right, you got this? And like we kind of just duck it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the cool thing about marketing too is we often get to stick with them for a while while they build their teams, right? Because they might bring in a strategist or someone to run the day-to-day, -day, but there are so many different people that you need to be part of a marketing department that we usually get to kind of like phase phase out or some stick with us for a long time. So it's it's a fun business to be in. I love working with the companies that are the size that we do. So some of them are even pre-revenue fundraising or funded um up to hmm, like 20 30 million uh you get to have a really serious impact on them because you're working with people that are the decision makers and you get to really help them directly and rapidly that's a, that's a difference and you know think about your time at ge a big conglomerate with zillions of employees everywhere like the project that you're working on is it really going to make a difference are you really going to see it versus working with these small companies where you can see it in action mm -hmm. your impact has direct results. I, mm -hmm. I think that's pretty cool. Let's talk about, you know, in the first, you know, couple of years of the business, what was an early lesson, hard lesson, a hard lesson you learned the hard way? Oh God. A tough, a tough lesson you learned the hard way. I mean, a lot of them, I am very hard headed and I think I learned a lot of lesons the hard way. <laughs> oh it's wow. A lot to get through. Really makes people want to take advice from me, I'm sure. But man, when I learn when I learn a lesson, I really learn it. 
Um, I was terrible with money management at the beginning and just not, not even just like ah, spending it all, but I didn't understand the mechanics behind it and why I needed to do things like all of the financial reporting you need to do and looking at things like margin and costs in certain areas. Um, I hated it. I, my business coach, coach that I've now been with for six years, um, when she first started making me do monthly financial reporting, I remember the first time I was like plugging in the little spreadsheet. It took me so long and I sent it to her and I was like, I hated this. I don't think I did half of it right. I'm not doing this anymore. And she was like, yes, you are. Um, and you're going to keep doing it and you better not outsource it to anyone because this is something you need to know. Um, now that she takes me like 10 minutes and I'm like, wow, I've come so far. <laughs> think about that too. It's fascinating that you said that because I hated math. I was bad at it. One of the reasons I left American Express was because I hated doing the monthly quarterly reports and the numbers and everything. But now being my own business owner, I need to see that. I need to see the P&L. I need to see the, because what we do, and I assume you as well, it's a margin game. Mm -hmm. It's a margin game. And Great I need time. to make sure that I'm at a certain level. Otherwise it's not worth the effort. Mm-hmm. Right. But then yep. there's other parts of it, too, where you have to make business decisions and say, like, I want to put somebody who might be a little bit more expensive here where it's a lower margin because that's what the client needs right now. And it's a long term play that's going to get me more business down the road. I put someone good in there who's maybe pricier, so to speak. They're higher skilled and it's going to be a better result and it's going to build a better relationship. Those are the decisions. But you wouldn't know that unless you didn't have those numbers in front of you to make those mm -hmm. calls. Can I afford it here? Can I do something else on that end? That, that, that's a tough one. So fast forward now, how many how many employees do you have? Um, 15 full-time and like seven part-time. That's awesome. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, what was it like hiring your first full-time employee? I mean, I'm not there yet. I, I have seven, uh, well now I have to say I'll be eight contractors uh, working for us. And it's tough to make that decision to hire somebody, right? Like we're not even talking about like all the, ta the taxes and the payroll, it's a big shift. Mm -hmm. And it's Actually, community. you have to support them financially. You have to make that payroll. Yeah. Quentin um, Q, who you mentioned earlier, was one of my first employees. He was an intern, funny enough. Um, same hat, I, right? He still the same hat? Uh, I don't think he did, <laughs> but he's always been a hat guy. Um, but my first full-time or hire was an account manager. And I remember meeting her for coffee. We just like shot the shit for an hour. And I was like, I like this girl. And then I hired her. And it probably like there probably should have been more that went into it, but I've just, I mean, I'm a risk taker. So I was like, let's do this and try to figure it out. Um, I think she stayed with me for like maybe a year to year and a half. And which God is honestly pretty long for me having no systems, no clue what I was doing. And really, I mean, I have managed people in a corporate setting, but it's completely different when you're running a business and trying to figure out how to manage people. Um, but then after that, I think I learned a lot more. I think luckily because they have stuck with me and helped me get a better system around it. What, what have you learned about managing and leading people in the last couple of years from where you started? So much. Everything. Um, everything. I mean, it, I, I was on a clubhouse chat a few weeks ago and one of the women was talking about how to scale her company because she's a consultant and she offers a specialized service and and all, all the panelists were like, oh, you need to hire people and train them. And I was like, you have to decide if you want to have a team. That is the very first thing you need to do. Because Some people work fine by themselves and they make enough and they're very happy with not managing people and being um, doers. 
Yeah. And frankly, I think I would probably make more if I was just out there consulting on my own than I do right now, at least with the amount that I'm investing back into the company. And it's, and it's not, but it's not about money. You, you, you have to be ready to learn how to really manage people. And it's not like you can just come to work and be like, put in the inputs. Did you do it? Good job. It's you're like, you're managing actual people that have emotions they're going through a pandemic you know they have lives it's i guess i never quite realized what exactly goes into being a good manager and a good leader and it's i'm still figuring it out but do you look back on your career at good managers that you work for and bad ones and take like the best and the worst and try not that's what i do Mm -hmm. i've been you know before i started my company like 15 years working in corporate america i've had good bosses shitty bosses and Try to try to take it, and you kind of hit on something, which is the hard part of managing. Like it's really that emotional. I hate the word empathy. I, not that what it means, but like the fact that it's really a buzzword now. But like so really is. genuinely caring and being interested in like, and we're managing. Like it's called it is like we're man, like I'm managing freelancers. They have lives, they have families. Like you have to like be flexible and understand. And at the same time, you're balancing your clients' demands and managing expectations. I talked about it earlier. It's tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have you have so many people that you're trying to do right by, right? Like I have a, a pretty good sized team now that I'm trying to do right by. We have a lot of clients that I'm trying to do right by. In my personal life, I'm trying to do right by my kids and my husband and my mom and spend time with all the people that I should be, not should be, but that I want to, you know, and that I want to show that I care with my time. It's you just get stretched so thin and in so many different directions. It can be a really difficult line to walk for sure. It's interesting you talk about that. I'm going through a bit of that right now. I mean, to share like it, the business is flying. The podcast and that side of the business is doing great. And I'm putting so much time and energy to it that I feel sometimes not that I'm neglecting my family and kids, but like, Am I giving them all of me? Am I being present all the time? And that presence is up here. Am I in the game with them? Mm-hmm. Am I enjoying that time with them? Like when I'm with them, am I thinking about work? Am I thinking about other things? And it's tough. It's a double-edged sword because on one side, it's awesome. We're growing something here. I'm growing this. You're growing that. We're growing stuff. But that's not what's the most important thing in our lives. Mm-mm. It's tough. It's hard. How do, you, how, do you, how do you manage it? It's so hard and I mean, I have like, I always feel guilty because I feel like I should be, there are other moms that are doing more, that are spending more time, that are the craft moms or the cook for school or the volunteer moms. And I'm not that mom. And I have, I really had to try to accept what I, the strengths and the things that I bring to the table that are unique as a mother, right? Like uh, uh, helping teach the kids how to work hard and stay organized and how to think through their problems. And like, I love listening to their social issues at school and helping them think through what they can, yeah, like what they can do about it. Right. And so do I spend as much time with my kids as all moms or some moms do? No, but I do make sure that I spend really specific one-on-one time with each of them. And that is, time that I'm really present with them and that I'm having fun with them and we're playing games and whatever. I mean, cause I think some parents spend a large amount of time with their kids, but it's just like, you know, they're sitting next to each other, but it's not quality. Right. So- watching, watching TV is not spending sitting there. No, it's, it's not. Um, 
When I when I say the word legacy, what what does that what does that mean to you? And what do you envision and want your legacy to be? I, I mean, I want to be the person that my family is talking about in a hundred years. Like, oh, old Grandma Jackie started this for us. You know, like I am the first. Well, my parents are both entrepreneurial, but I'm the first one that made a full time role out of gig out of my own company. Um, and I think it's gonna really expand into generations of the family because I see my kids talking about the things that they wanna do. Um, and I just, I want them to, I don't wanna set them up so they never have to do anything, but I want them to have everything that they that they need. Yeah, gen, gen, generational, generational wealth and, and leading by example. And I talk about this all the time. And I love it when my daughter came in here for the first time. I mean, she lives by, these are her initials. These are my daughter's initials. Right here, I named the company after her. She wore she wore the sweatshirt today. She has the NHP sweatshirt. She wore she wears that with pride, and not just because it's her name, but because she sees what what I built here, and she loves it. And she comes in here and she does a show with me sometimes. She turns it into a TikTok studio with all the lights in here, and that's cool. But what she's also seeing is her mom and her dad work their asses off, and 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 give and and be able to provide. And I think that's really uh, what it's all about. Jackie, the last 14 months have been crazy. Um, as a business owner, as a mom, as a wife, I'd love if you could share your perspective on the good side of this 14 months. And if you could share a personal silver lining and a professional silver lining that you've experienced during the pandemic. Yeah, I wrote an article on this on LinkedIn um, called, I didn't know I was lost. And it's from that Avicii song, um, which I just love. But it's so funny because I, I always remember listening to that song and thinking like, so catchy, I love it, doesn't apply to me. It did, it always has. And I just, I think the pandemic gave me time to sit with myself and really think about the ways in which I was lost. like mental health and the way that I speak to myself and take care of myself and the the amount that I'm able to give to others all stems from, you know, how I treat myself and first. So I have gotten, I don't know, I just kind of went on this journey inward um, and figured out how I can better manage my life and my time and my mental and physical well-being. And it's, I mean, I, oddly enough, I feel a lot happier than I did at the beginning of the pandemic. And like, damn, I am blessed as as heck to be able to say that because there has been a lot of negative impact. I almost feel guilty saying something like that, you, you know? But it's okay, celebrate it. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of companies that are freaking profiting like nobody's business during the pandemic. Right, right. And and and, and on, a, on a personal note, you know, People talk about that reconnection with your with the families and, and everything. And and hopefully you've been able to do that and spend more of that individual time and, and the family time there uh, mm -hmm. together. Um, Jackie, I want to I want to wrap things up here. Uh, where can folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Yeah, LinkedIn is the spot. I spend a lot of time there. So hit me up in the DMs. And then my website is JackieHermits.com. Um, you can find out more about me and the company and my new course there. Awesome. Tell us about the course real quick. Get that plug in there. Yeah, um, it is. It's going to be a like quick and hard hitting course. I have the shortest attention span on the planet. So I wanted to make a course for people that just really need like the, the quick advice and the tools to create a foundation for your company. So branding, marketing plan, executing it, testing it, it's all going to be in there. And I'm really excited about it. 
Awesome. Love it. Jack Lee. Jack. I've been having too much Jack of this. Lee. Uh -huh. Jack Lee. It's, uh, Jack, that's LaCroix plus Jackie plus Aha. Uh -huh in, in, in one thing. There. But Jackie, hang with me for one moment here as I sign off. Everyone who's been joining us today on the live stream, thank you. I appreciate you. The replay is where it's at. It's crazy. People love the replay because people are working. They're going to be checking out what's happening here in the midday show. But yeah. thank everybody for joining us today. You can find out more at thepodcast.com. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>